Yeah, thank you so much, Emily. Thank you to the missions committee. Done a tremendous job um, for the sake of our church. Our scripture passage for this morning is from the book of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. Matthew, chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. Uh, the scripture passage will be up here on the screen. If you have a Bible, we always encourage you to pull that out and follow along with us. And there are some blue Bibles and some of the uh, baskets in front of you. Matthew, chapter 6, verse 5 through 15, as we continue our series in the Sermon on the Mount. And I got to tell you, I, I don't know if there's a topic that's more dear to my heart uh, than prayer. And so may the Lord use these next two Sundays to shape us and to form us. If you are physically able to stand, please stand for the reading of God's word. This is Jesus speaking in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. And when you pray... You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Lord, would you give us the grace that we desperately need to unpack faithfully this passage and apply it to our lives. Holy Spirit, would you move in such great power among us. Increase not only our knowledge of how to pray, but, Lord, our affections for prayer. I understand that we're in a diverse room. Some of us love prayer, love individual prayer, love corporate prayer. Some of us dread it. And so I pray that you would work in all of our lives accordingly and very precisely. But I also want to pray uh, for one of our sister congregations in our denomination, the Community of Grace uh, in Memphis, Tennessee. I pray for... Uh, Pastor Mark DeMeyer Sr., Lord, that you would give his congregation and him and all of his leaders such unbelievable wisdom and discernment to know how to care for a city that is really, really hurting uh, and angry and confused and all kinds of things. So we lift them up even now as they meet uh, in a few moments as a congregation. Would you bless them and equip them? We love you and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to read you some comments from a pastor and an author who's recently been navigating health challenges related to a pancreatic cancer diagnosis. I'll, I'll nuance these comments just a little bit after I read them, but first just let them hit you. He says, this is going to sound like an exaggeration. My wife and I would never want to go back to the kind of prayer life and spiritual life we had before the cancer. Never. This journey has allowed us to genuinely experience Psalm 90, verse 14. Satisfy us 
in the morning with your unfailing love, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Every so often, my wife and I will say, we're having a much better life now. When it comes to prayer, I really thought that I had a good prayer life. And when I broke through to another dimension, I realized, my goodness, my prayer life wasn't very good. Knowing you really are going to die changes the way you look at your time, the way you look at God, the way you look at your spouse. Everything just changes when you actually realize that time is limited and I'm mortal. Certainly not saying that cancer is good. It's such a grievous and, and just awful thing, and he makes that clear elsewhere. Many of you know the pain and the heartache associated with, with cancer and other serious illnesses and diseases. But for him, this cancer journey, which will end in his death in probably fairly short order, has catalyzed a new level of spiritual vitality, especially in his prayer life, that he and his wife would, quote, never want to go back from. And accordingly, they are having, quote, a much better life now than they were before the cancer. Obviously, there's a lot that we could unpack here, but here's, here's the headline, especially in light of our purposes this morning. It is possible to enjoy prayer so much that you could look upon the circumstances of a devastating cancer battle and conclude it's worth it. In fact, I don't want to go back. I don't know about you, but I think that is stunning, especially for those of us who admittedly do not enjoy prayer and, and may have effectively abandoned it altogether. What I'm seeing here and reading here is that our prayer lives could be this rich. They could be this meaningful. Today and next Sunday, we are talking about prayer, mainly the hows, since that's where Jesus leads us in this passage. These hows, in one sense, they're kind of mechanical. You know, don't do this, do this instead. But very importantly, I, and I mean really importantly, we're also talking about how to enjoy prayer. That how. As we've been seeing throughout the Sermon on the Mount, these exhortations from Jesus are actually intended to help us flourish, not just follow some Christian rules and get our act together. So Jesus teaches his disciples about prayer, get this, because he wants them to enjoy it and benefit from it. This is by no means that, you know, you're on the team now, so you'd better figure out how to pray. You better look the part. He's teaching them how to pray that they might enjoy it and be blessed by it. It's really wonderful news, especially for those of us who are struggling with prayer. We're really not here this morning to kind of twist some screws, to heap upon our shoulders a little bit of, of spiritual guilt. You know, certainly some conviction might be necessary along the way, but the goal ultimately is refreshment and joy. That's why we're here. Two reflections as we make our way through this passage and consider how we might enjoy prayer. Number one, the Father sees us. And then number two, the Father changes us. The Father sees us. 
and the Father changes us. Let's look at that first reflection. The Father sees us. Last week, we talked at length about the many problems with practicing our righteousness in order to be seen, specifically in the context of giving to the needy. Now we see here in verse 5 that those same problems apply to praying in order to be seen, which is yet another potential indicator of a diseased heart that's not fully satisfied in the Lord. Giving to be seen, giving to the needy to be seen, I think is a bigger issue in our day than praying to be seen, mainly because the applause that we enjoy in society for generous deeds is, is far louder than the applause given for prayer. I mean, think, for example, of how many people bristle when they see uh, thoughts and prayers tweets on social media and then angrily reply that you should do something instead. A lot more applause for doing these days than praying. But nonetheless, it is important that we pause, especially because this is what Jesus is talking about in the text, and consider how we might be thirsting for praise via prayer and then asking why we're doing it and what that says about the condition of our hearts. I'll let you do most of that work on your own again since we spent so much time on this subject last week. But once again, and this, is, this has been a tough couple of weeks for social media, consider, you know, maybe that the coffee shop post with your Bible and the mug might not be the most edifying thing. Recently, I saw a shot where the mug and the saucer were physically placed on the Bible. I would not recommend that. I'm just, I'm just here to help. And of course, we need to be aware of, of prayers this is something we can really just diagnose on our own. We need to be aware of prayers in any setting that we know in our hearts are really meant to impress people, such as with our, our theological knowledge, with our eloquence, rather than honor God and encourage his people. The alternative to this sort of praise-thirsting prayer is, of course, secrecy. For example, as Jesus tells his disciples in verse 6, going into your room, shutting the door, and praying to your Father, who is in secret. It's really important to keep in mind that Jesus is prescribing this private room prayer as an antidote to praise thirsting. So the main point here is not pray in your room with the door closed. The main point is do whatever you need to do to avoid praying like the hypocrites. In this case, the, the private room exhortation made sense given the problem of the hour, which involved prayer performances in synagogues and on street corners. So praying out loud in church or praying out loud in, in public is fine as long as you're not praise-thirsting. You can even see examples of this kind of prayer in the lives of Jesus' disciples and, and his early followers. And I mean, goodness, those of us who have, who have prayed in our rooms with the door, you know, slightly cracked, can you imagine such a, a damnable offense? Be loose this morning from your, from your shackles of shame, right? Because the point is avoiding hypocrisy, not the rules concerning what constitutes a fully shut door. But the social media stuff might not be fine if that's become the street corner of our day. 
which I think it has. Yeah, let's proclaim Jesus. Can we please proclaim Jesus on the internet? But let's not proclaim ourselves, which means some heart searching in order to kind of discern the difference between the two and how to know it. There is a second prayer trap, though. Did you catch this? So there's prayer trap number one, praise thirsting, praying in public in order to be seen or to be praised by others. But there's a second prayer trap, which involved this Gentile practice of, you can see this in verse 7, heaping up empty phrases, thinking that they will be heard, that is, by their pagan gods, on account of their many words. So here's the thing. Not only are pagan gods false gods, worshiping them, such as through prayer, is completely exhausting. They're false and worshiping them will totally wear you out. You have to, to please such gods through meritorious exertion, such as offering up all of these, these magic bean formulas to make sure that your, your prayers make it upstairs, you know? These are prayers that are usually kind of spiritually meaningless. They're disengaged. They're nothing more than a means to an end. And then when your prayers, if this is the kind of praying, praying that you're doing, I mean, then when your prayers seem to, to hit pay dirt, you know, when, when things happen in, in alignment with your prayers, you become insufferably self-righteous. My goodness, thinking that the quality of your prayers and your attention to detail had something to do with it, and then when your prayers appear to go nowhere, it's a shame bath, right? I mean, the, the gods, they would love to help you, but unfortunately you messed up the script. Pagan prayer practices were prevalent enough that Jesus was concerned they would influence the prayer lives of his disciples. Thus, this very proactive desire that you can see in verses 9 through 13 to show them how to pray. And we'll consider those verses in just a few moments. But first, you need to do a little bit of, I don't know, preaching. If that's okay, don't answer that because we're going to do it. We're going to do it anyway. <laughs> it's not hard. It's really not hard to imagine very anxious, kind of rulesy understandings of this passage. And I have heard this passage understood or explained in exactly this kind of way. What, you know, I, man, I, goodness, I guess I got to make sure. You know, my prayers aren't too long. i got to make sure that my prayers don't contain any extraneous words. And my goodness, I, I really need to be focused when I pray uh, just on God. And maybe I shouldn't be organizing any, you know, kind of public prayer gatherings because, you know, maybe then I would be praise thirsting and, and so on and so forth. You can just go right down the rabbit hole. But here's the thing. It turns out that these do's and don'ts from Jesus are actually intended to help his disciples enjoy the Father they're praying to. That is, the Father who sees them and knows them. Why, I want to ask, can we put our praise-thirsting prayer practices to bed and instead pray in secret? Why can we do that? Here's why. Because God the Father is always with us, even in those secret moments. And so he always sees us, even when no one else does, verse 6. 
Church, did you know that God is always nearer to his people than we think he is? However close you think he is, he's closer. When he feels distant and aloof, the problem really isn't with his proximity. The problem is with our awareness of his proximity. And because the Father is with you and sees you, he can and does reward you. Discerning the precise nature of this reward, it's a little bit speculative, similar to what we said about rewards last week in the context of of giving to the needy. It may have to do with, with satisfaction related to observing God at work in and through our prayers. James chapter 4, verse Two, which reads, you do not have because you do not ask. It's, that's a fascinating verse on this point. It, it suggests that there is space within God's sovereignty for our prayers to truly do something. So maybe part of the reward is experiencing God at work in and through our prayers. And certainly, our secret prayers, church, are rewarding in the sense that they will nourish the quality in the intensity of our relationship with God, who is himself our greatest reward. Praise-seeking prayers are always they're spiritually bankrupt. There's nothing there. We're kind of exposing ourselves. Prayers genuinely directed to God are spiritually catalytic in their reward. There is a way of praying that will get you nowhere, and that's the kind of praying seen and thirsting for praise and affirmation. There is a kind of prayer that will get you spiritual rewards and catalyze all kinds of good for the glory of God, and that's the kind of prayer that's genuinely directed in God's arena. Why can we release, here's another question, why can we release any meritorious tendencies to to move God in our prayers using special words or phrases or or putting on some sort of really intense show, why can we do that? Because, verse 8, our Father knows what we need before we ask Him. Some folks read this and they conclude, well, you know, if that's the case, why pray? What's the point? And that's, that's an understandable sentiment. I get that, and we will say more about it in a bit. But honestly, it kind of misses the headline. When we pray, Jesus wants us to remember that the Father supernaturally sees us so clearly and so profoundly that he already knows what we need before we ask him. Young children sometimes have a a difficult time articulating what they need, especially, you know, if their language skills aren't particularly developed, and they're fighting to say the right words, and as they fight for those words, you can often see and hear their anxiety rising, because they're increasingly afraid that they're not going to get what they desperately need because of their communication deficiencies. It's, it's heartbreaking to watch. And then I got to tell you, sometimes the parents don't know what they're saying either. <laughs> to be honest with you, they don't know they're trying to communicate, and, they're, and they're, you know, they're getting emotional. Right? I, you know, the whole thing can really start going sideways. But sometimes, I would say almost supernaturally, the parents just know 
You know, any other onlooker would have no idea what the child needs. But the parents do, because they know their children so well. As the child begins to speak, the parents already have the right snack. I said the right snack, not just a snack. They have the right snack. And then the tone of the conversation, it changes entirely. I mean, the child may well finish his or her round of communication, but the anxiety starts to melt away. And you know what happens? The rest of the conversation becomes more joyful because now the child isn't worried about getting enough to eat. She's simply enjoying the presence of her father. False gods require exhausting, basically meritorious communication that's always filled with anxiety and uncertainty. Jesus simply invites us to rest in him, and that includes our prayer lives, by the way, because the Father already knows what we need, which reframes prayer as, at the end of the day, this really beautiful opportunity to simply be with God. You see this? It doesn't mean that we're going to get everything that we think we need. It doesn't mean that but we can be certain that God already knows what we really need. And we can be certain that our Heavenly Father is a Father who loves to give good gifts to His children. Matthew chapter 7, we'll come to that passage in just a few weeks. Michael Reeves writes in his fantastic and short book, there's a lot of books out there on prayer. Sometimes we read more books about prayer than we actually pray, so be mindful of that. I like short books on prayer, and he wrote a really good one called Enjoy Your Prayer Life, and he says this, To know you are a beloved child of God protects you from thinking of prayer as a ladder to God or an exercise by which you work your way into his favor. Prayer doesn't make you more accepted. Prayer is growing in the appreciation of what you've been given. Maybe this helps us understand why the kind of prayer that Jesus invites us into is a when, not an if, verse 5, 6, and 7, three times. When we pray the way that Jesus is inviting us to pray, the Father rewards us, and He already knows what we need. So the pressure is off, and the joy is on. That's why Jesus is saying, when you, when you pray, why would you not? when to be engaged in this kind of thing. I mean, certainly prayer requires effort, even a lot of effort in some seasons. But it's such a rich and worthwhile effort. But how do we pray? How do we pray? And Chipper, I thought we were just, didn't we just, we literally just talked about that. We were, at least the manner of it. But now for some nuts and bolts here in verses 9 through 13. The first part, focusing vertically in our posture before God, which will be our focus for the rest of our time this morning. And then we'll talk about the second, more kind of horizontal part of this prayer, you might say, next week. So here's our second reflection as we consider how we might enjoy prayer. The Father changes us. 
So the Father sees us, we just talked about that, and then that same Father ends up changing us. Look with me again at verses 9 and 10. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Disciples of Jesus get to call the Father our Father. That's a sermon right there. That's a miracle that ultimately has to do with 2 Corinthians 5.21, very famously for our sake, God the Father made him, that is Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's a miracle that has to do with Romans chapter 8, verses 14 and 15, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. At all times, as we make our way through the Sermon on the Mount, it is critically important to keep in mind that the guy giving the sermon was on his way to the cross and would eventually send the Spirit that he might remain with his spiritual children even after his resurrection and ascension. Keep that in mind at all times as we go through this sermon. That's where he's going. So when we repent and deny ourselves and take up our cross for the sake of following Jesus, surrendering our lives to him in hope, we get to call the Father our Father. And i got to tell you, it's a best of, of both worlds kind of situation in which he really is our Father right now, which entails a warm, personal relationship with the God of the universe, but he's also in heaven possessing supreme authority and power. Some of us, when we think about the Father, we're inclined to think of his, what comes to mind immediately is his, his fatherly warmth, and we, we love songs like maybe the reckless love of God. We love singing that. We just, man, we get the love infusion. Some of us, when we think about the Father, primarily think about his power, and we love hymns like a mighty fortress is our God. But the Father is both power and love. This cosmic harmony, you might say, that we do very well to remind ourselves whenever we pray. It's a posture that reminds us to rest in the Lord's comforting embrace without veering into sentimentalism. It's a posture that reminds us to trust in the Lord and to reverently fear Him without veering into fatalism or, or stoicism. One of the ways we enjoy prayer is by reminding ourselves that both of these things are true of the Father, and then declaring them accordingly as we, as we begin our prayers. And in doing so, when we declare this, our Father who is in heaven, we set the table for God-centered prayers rather than self-centered prayers, even as we're going to talk about next week when we make personal petitions. Do we always have to copy this precise language in verse 9? No. And that applies to this entire 
prayer. Sometimes we should. I think it's helpful to do so, but we don't always have to do that. But we always copy the posture. Do you see this? We always copy the posture, however we might say it. And then as we, as we consider the Father's preeminent love and power, we end up declaring to ourselves, we end up declaring to one another, hallowed be your name. This is, you see how this is like a crescendo. If you're into music, this is a, this is a crescendo. It's getting louder. It's a crescendo in which we, we yearn for the Father's name to be set apart and glorified everywhere by everyone. Hello, Global Missions. See you in February. If this God is our Father in heaven, we want him to be known. We want him to be esteemed. And we become consumed with zeal for the glory of God's name, regardless of how warm the water is culturally. Listen, we are jumping into the deep end, even if the water is 40 degrees. Who cares? Because we're so, so zealous for God to be known and esteemed and, and glorified across the earth. You know, when you jump into 40 degree water, it can be really uncomfortable, but it's also invigorating. You know, one of the possible cures for spiritual depression is just to put yourself out there and see what happens. To be bold. All of which brings me to perhaps my favorite part about prayer. When we pray, God has this way of changing us. Did you know that? When we pray, God has this way of changing us. He has this way of changing our wills, our affections, to be more like His. You know, we go into prayer usually thinking like, God, this is what I need. You know, maybe a little bit of adoration real quick, check that box. But the main thing is we need this. And listen, those requests may well be valid. God wants to hear them. He does. So we go into prayer like that. But then this is what happens. God does this sneaky thing in which we leave with this surprising experience of heart change, feeling as though God has actually altered something inside of us, that something is different. Look at verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. I mean, yeah, this is, a, this is such a broad petition. Do you see this? We're so consumed with zeal for our Father in heaven that we, that we long for God's kingdom. Best thought of as his, his reign and his rule. We long for God's kingdom to overwhelm the entire earth. We're, we're looking forward with certain hope to the full consummation of his kingdom when Christ returns. And we're desperately pleading with the Lord that his will might be esteemed and practiced. Here on earth, while we wait for Christ's return, that our, that our cities and our, our countries and so forth might approximate the heavenly kingdom, that we might be blessed and flourished. But please don't miss this. Yes, there's, there's some very broad petitions here, but please don't miss this. Church, if we are praying, your will be done, we are signing up to be conduits 
of God's will here on earth. In other words, we're petitioning the Father to change us. Can you imagine a more wonderful opportunity? I can't. This is why this is my favorite part. I cannot imagine a more wonderful opportunity than saying to God, would you make me more like you? Would you conform my will to your will? Would you conform my affections to your affections? If he's God, all-loving, all-powerful, why would we not want that and long for that? I'll close with this, this one little picture, maybe to help you illustrate this. And I kind of wrestled with whether or not to give it, but why not? You know, last Sunday in January. Uh, I've mentioned, I talk, um, I've, I've spoken often about how uh, my dad passed away very tragically 10 years ago. Um, it's a really, it's been a fascinating experience of both grieving but also a lot of joy because I did have a wonderful ja- dad. So I lost him, but he was wonderful while I had him. And some of you have never had a very good dad. I understand that, and that's a grievous, terrible thing. And I've walked with some of you through that, and you are in that right now. But I want to I say this as I acknowledge that. As I've gotten older, I have found that one of the most wonderful things that people can say to me as I grieve is you're becoming more like your dad. And the amount of, of joy found in those considerations is unspeakably rich. And they're not talking about his athleticism. He was a great athlete. I'm okay. They're talking about his warmth. They're talking about his love for other people. There is so much joy to be found in knowing and having people tell you, hey, you're becoming more like your Heavenly Father. Pray so that the Lord can have some space to make you more like Him. And I just don't know if there's a richer, truer joy to be experienced here on earth to realize that you're becoming more like your dad and to hear people in your spiritual community say, he's changing you. You're becoming more like him. Amen.